and read God's word for us. Our reading is from Isaiah 53. You will find it on page 740 in the Bibles in front of you. Isaiah 53, beginning at the first verse. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a shoot out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, thank you, David. And do um, keep that passage open. If you've got a church Bible, it's page 740. Let's pray. Father, may I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And may you give us ears to hear, we pray. Amen. Well, what a week. Uh, I understand that uh, the staff team have currently got bets on how long I can stand here before I mention the corona word. And there we go, James, that's about two seconds. I don't know if you saw one of the Mac cartoons this week, which had a picture of two people sitting on a sofa watching a TV um, with Corona Latest on, written on the screen. And one turns to the other and says, oh, remember those heady Brexit days. <laughs> You'll have seen from my emails this week that we're following uh, public health advice, taking this very seriously and doing what we can to mitigate and delay the spread of the virus, seeking ways to increase our pastoral care and our remote care for one another for the days to come. I'm aware it's an anxious time, and there are things that we can do to help one another through this. First and foremost, obviously, if you have a persistent cough or temperature, however mild, please don't come. (laughs) Keep washing your hands. At an individual level, we can ensure that we're in contact with our home groups or our small groups, checking in wherever possible with our neighbours too. And assuming that there will be a time when we can't meet easily face-to-face, as James uh, signalled earlier, this is a really good and important time uh, to make sure that we have your details on Church Suite, which is the administration system, and that you've given us the permissions that we need to contact you. Ideal from our perspective is your email, your phone number, and your address. Um, People have asked me why the address. Well, that's because if we do go into lockdown, we'd love to be able to uh, help one another in geographic groups. Um, So please, if you haven't yet done that, please can you make sure that we have your email, your phone number, and your address. That's very practical things, and that is important. But I think one of the biggest things that we can do is to help each other face the anxiety and the fear and help one another to pray and help one another to trust and find security in the Lord rather than in cupboards that are full to the brim to the detriment of our neighbours. This virus confronts us with a sense of being out of control. It forces us to come face to face with our frailty and our fragility. And it makes us question what hope we have for this life and life beyond physical death. In light of these questions, it's brilliant that today we're continuing this short series on the wondrous cross. Because the cross speaks into our anxiety and our concern. The cross speaks into our frailty and our lack of control. And it speaks into our future hope. This reading that we heard from Isaiah was about 500, written about 500 years before Christ. And it's midway through one of the servant songs. For the first 40 chapters in Isaiah, the theme has been one of comfort. 
in the face of profound suffering of the Jewish people, whose land had been taken from them, who had lost everything, who were subject to the tyranny of the Babylonian rule, Isaiah has tried to bring comfort, reassurance, hope. It's been a little bit like, a gov- like government advice that says, it'll be okay, you can rely on us, everything will be fine. But no one has addressed the question, how? How are you going to bring comfort? How do you bring peace to our anxiety and fear at this time? And from chapter 40 and climaxing here in chapter 53, we hear an answer to that question, how? We see a servant figure who will achieve a remarkable spiritual rehabilitation of a fallen world, who's going to achieve it in a startling way, through suffering, through a wondrous cross, redemption through suffering. And the passage that we have moves from one camera angle to another. It's as though we're hearing from various voices, the chief medical officer, then the GP, then the self-isolator, then the social media commentator. They all want their say on how uh, they see and understand the situation. And here we don't have the medics, but we see this servant through the eyes of different people. We see him through the eyes of the world through the eyes of God himself, and through the eyes of the believer. You see, it's a matter of perspective. And again, that's so helpful for us, isn't it, in this time, to realize that what we see, what the world sees, isn't necessarily the full story. It's a reminder that we need to seek the right perspective. So today, just as we think about our perspective in terms of the virus, we also want to look at these different perspectives as we make our way through this story of the servant today. So firstly, the servant in the eyes of the world, verses 1 to 3 and 7 to 9. The servant is described as a figure of contempt. A picture is given of inhuman suffering. This servant has no beauty to attract him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Oppressed, afflicted, cut off, without descendants. He's physically deformed and has ceased to appear human. His appearance is disfigured beyond human likeness. People look away. And he finds himself socially ostracized, isolated, despised and rejected, and so people hide their faces. Not only was he a figure of physical contempt, but we read that we esteemed him not. For heaven to treat him like this, he must have done something really wicked, we presume. We considered him stricken, smitten, afflicted by God, and yet in the end... We find that, verse 9, his sufferings are undeserved. He had no violence, nor was any deceit. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He's a figure of contempt and of tragedy. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth, verse 7. 
He's the archetypal victim. And to the world, it seems that he has nothing to give. Rejected, isolated, disfigured, a tragic and contemptible figure, a pathetic, suffering waste of life. Yet, as with so much of life, the way the world sees things and the way that God sees things are very different. Perhaps we need to think about that at this time uh, of the coronavirus. But more importantly, as we look at this servant, do we see the different ways that people view him and that God views him? So we've seen how the world sees him. We now change the camera angle to see how God sees this mysterious servant. You see, from God's perspective, this isn't a figure of contempt and tragedy. No. At the start of this song, which actually starts in chapter 52, verse 13, we see he's wise, that he'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. You see, God sees wisdom and glory and achievement where the world sees foolishness and shame and failure. And at the end of the song in verse 12, we learn that to this servant, God will give him a portion among the great, a picture of victory and triumph. You see, in God's eyes, this servant grew up like a tender shoot. In spiritual barrenness and in a world of fear and anxiety, this living shoot of beauty and life pushes its way into the wilderness. The only perfectly attractive object in a fallen and broken world. And so the obvious question for us is why then does he suffer? Why is he the one who will end up despised and rejected? And the answer is in verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Now surely that can't be right, can it? It's the Lord's will for this servant to suffer? It can't be right for the innocent to suffer and for injustice to win out. Yet in his suffering, he achieves something in the will and the purpose of God. And this is the wonder of the cross. This servant isn't some random person who suffers, but he is God's purposeful answer to sin. And in verse 10, we read that the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. Through the pain and the agony of his offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. See his offspring because he'll enable you and me and millions across this world to be part of his family reconciled to God forever through his blood. Prolong his days because physical earthly life will not stop him. Eternal life in Christ will be one. So verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. After suffering, light. A resurrection light, perhaps. And how will this happen? Well, verse 10 speaks of a guilt offering. And verse 11 of how this servant will justify many and bear their iniquities. Verse 7, he's compared to being led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
death always seems so pointless. But the people of Isaiah's day knew that the death of a lamb was not pointless. Because the high priest would lay his hand on the lamb's head in the temple, and the sins of the people were proclaimed, and the lamb died. They knew that only blood and death would pay for forgiveness. Because someone always pays when there's forgiveness. It is not a neutral act. Tim Keller writes, To forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. You see, the lamb died so that the people could be pardoned. It wasn't in vain. The blood was shed and the lamb died for the sin of the people. God saw it, knew it, even as the world looked on and mocked, that this servant is no helpless victim, but God's solution for our sin. So we've seen the camera angle of the world and of God, and now we see the servant in the eyes of the believer. Verses 4 to 6, the key is the great swap that takes place. The servant is sacrificed on the people's behalf. He was pierced for our transgressions, that deliberate crossing of a line between right and wrong. He was crushed for our iniquities, those inbuilt biases, injustices, prejudices that warp our thinking and speaking and living. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. As the camera swings round, so we see it from the perspective of the believer, there's a swap that takes place. Our place is taken by someone else, pierced and crushed and punished for our transgressions, for our iniquities, and by his wounds, we are healed. And this is for everyone because verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has laid on him like a, a blanket that's made carefully to meet in just the right way the iniquity of us all. A remedy for the greatest and most pernicious sin known to humanity. Every sin in history meets this suffering servant and is laid on him. Now, if you were one of the Jewish people of the time, wouldn't you want to know who this servant was? 500 years after Isaiah had written, the people to whom he wrote had found their way back from exile, but the servant hadn't appeared. Then at the hill of Golgotha, the perfect, sinless servant whom God chose, cherished and loved, went to his death on a cross. And the world jeered and mocked and looked away at the disfigured, tragic, contemptible man. But for those with eyes to see, the great exchange has taken place. He takes our sin and shame and it's laid on him at the wondrous cross. I'm a sinner. 
but he is my saviour. What does that do for us in this time of anxiety? Well, it reminds us to take a different perspective and change the camera angle from the worry of our neighbours and our friends and ourselves. It speaks into our future hope in and beyond this life. Because if life is a game and history is a playing field, which is the moment that you least want to be on the pitch? I'd suggest it's that time when you stand before God, convicted with sentence about to be passed. What would you do to be substituted then? Well, the servant enters the pitch when we need him most. This message speaks into our frailty and our lack of control. Right now, it reminds me that when I can't control the spread of this virus, God still reigns. It was God's will that the servant would suffer. And the people didn't understand that then. And we don't understand God's world now. Yet he reigns and he is sovereign. It reminds me that while I'm fragile and my life is short, there is one who suffered and yet sees the light of life, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. It reminds me that in my sin, the great exchange has happened. He was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. So whatever lies before us, we have one who justifies us, verse 12. We can be confident to approach God as sinners, declaring that through this servant's death, it is paid for, dealt with, and we're justified. The servant sees me as a sinner, but he comes to me as a savior so that I can approach the throne of God and be welcome there. Do you see that? Have you received that truth and does it shape your life? We come as sinners, but we're accepted and loved by a Savior. Let's pray. Loving Father, in our concern and our anxiety, will you help us to trust you and to see your perspective? We thank you for this servant. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that although we are sinners, yet he comes to us as Savior. And that at the wondrous cross, that great exchange takes place. My punishment, my sin, my wounds, for his peace, his righteousness, his healing. Father, this day we come as sinners. And we give you thanks for a saviour who makes us right before you. Amen.